0: During the recording and editing of this episode of the Indie Insider Podcast, we encountered a number of audio and technical issues. While we've done our best to address these problems, the audio quality of this episode may be below our normal standard at times. We're grateful to our guest David Mullick for his patience, and to all of you for your understanding. Hey everyone, Logan here. Uh, just a quick note before we get started. If you enjoy the show and like what we're doing here, there's nothing more helpful that you can do than leave us a review on iTunes. Please let us know if you like what we're doing or if there are things you'd like us to change. We could really use your ratings and reviews. Plus, if you leave a review on iTunes in the next two weeks and let us know you did, you could win a $10 Amazon gift card. But make sure that you send us an email or find us on Twitter so we know how to reach you. Either way, thank you very much for listening to Indie Insider for 25 episodes. It's been an absolute pleasure to produce this show and share it with all of you. Welcome to Indie Insider, the weekly show where we chat with video game industry professionals about their projects, their stories, their advice to others, and of course, their thoughts on everything indie. I'm your host, Logan Schultz, and today on the show I sit down with David Mullick, an industry veteran who has worked on such notable titles as 1980's The Prisoner, the hit 1985 adaptation of I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, and a number of games in the Heroes of Might and Magic series. We chat about his fascinating story, his advice to avoid burnout, what he thinks of the indie apocalypse, and much more. Before we get to the interview, however, a couple of quick notes. This show is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm working to help indie developers reach their goals and new audiences. The company also strives to offer unique, inspiring, and even educational services for developers, publishers, and gamers alike, which is why we get to bring this show to you. Speaking of which, be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the internet, and please leave a review. If you'd like to be a part of the show and share your thoughts, questions, or even request a professional to bring on the podcast, send me an email at logan at blackshellmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider Podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Finally, special thanks to David for joining us on the show, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for allowing us to use his song, Going Higher, in the show. And now, veteran game producer and designer, David Mullick. Welcome to Indie Insider Today. I am talking with David Mullick. Uh, whose work you are definitely familiar with. He is a veteran of this industry, uh, and I'm super excited to talk to him. David, how's it going?
1: Oh it's going great. How are you doing, Logan?
0: I'm doing pretty good. Uh, You told me that it's been a bit rainy, uh, but uh, that things seem to be brightening up in your area.
1: Yeah, it's been unusually rainy here in Los Angeles. It's been raining most of the past week and still a little bit overcast, but hasn't dampened my spirits. (laughs)
0: <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. Well, hey, I am excited to have you on the show. Um I am just stunned by your portfolio of work. So I'm excited to just chat with you, pick your brain about your story, you know, uh who you are and um a- a- and just hear a bit about, you know, what's what's next, what's exciting you and and then pick your brain a bit about the indie video game industry, uh your thoughts on, you know, what's going on in the video game scene right now so if that all sounds good to you i i would love to just start at the beginning and and maybe you can tell me a little bit of just how you got into video games in the first place
1: well would you believe the beginning started almost 40 years ago (laughs) when i was uh yeah i was a student at cal state northridge and uh i originally went into college planning to be either a film director or a artist or a writer and I, i really couldn't decide which of these things so I decided, you know, I'm just going to take a bunch of courses and uh, and just try to figure out what where I should take my career. Because I really didn't have a, a lot of faith in making money at okay. either of these professions. So, so I took a bunch of courses and I took a computer science class just to fulfill my general education requirements. And one day while I was sitting in the computer lab waiting to use the shared printer, I started typing out a Star Trek game because I was a huge Star Trek nerd. Excellent. And as I, was, yes. as I was writing it, I realized that I was essentially creating an interactive story and that a computer could be as valid an artistic medium as was a, a camera, a easel, or a typewriter. So I immediately got excited by that whole idea and uh, went down to the administration center and changed my major to computer science. <laughs> so started taking computer courses and... Uh, one day, I was taking a COBOL class, common business-oriented language, which was mainly used by the government and by banking industries. But in addition to doing my homework assignments, I was using the school computer to print out pictures of the Starship Enterprise and generate poetry. Well, my professor caught me doing this and called me over. And I thought it was going to be a deep trouble, but instead he offered me a job. He and a couple of the other professors had opened up one of the very first computer stores in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. They were selling the original Apple II computer, and oh, he offered wow. me as, as a job as a clerk. So it was great. It was, it was like across the street from the school, and uh, really fit into my schedule. So I went there, <laughs> and as it turned out, some of the people who started the very first game publishers bought their computers at that store. And one of them, a guy by the name of Sherwin Steffen, who uh, who had a company called Eduware Services that made educational software and games, he okay. asked me to write a couple of games for him. So my first game was a uh, role-playing game uh, that was actually a sequel to one of their their current games. They, they had a text role-playing game called Space that was about space travel. So I wrote a sequel to that game, and it uh, took me only about a couple of weeks. And uh, there wasn't, an, and it was sold sold in the store. And I think I got like a hundred dollars in royalties from it, which <laughs> I thought was amazing. Sure, I, yeah, that was, that was a lot of money to, to me as a college student in uh, around nineteen eighty. Um, so, uh, so i made a couple more games, uh, made a, uh, simulation based upon, uh, based upon the oil crisis that was going on at the time. And then, uh, then, uh, one day they said that they were going up to the San Francisco Computer Fair and they needed a new game to promote that weekend. So I sat down on a Tuesday and in three days came up with a new game, uh, based upon, uh, television network programming because I was taking a class in, in mass communications right so there was my third my third game uh, and uh, and when I graduated this was when I was in my senior when I graduated they offered me a full-time job as a game designer and producer so I started originally started making educational software but there was a television show that that had been going on during my college years that I was really passionate about called the prisoner okay which, which was a science fiction series. Uh, made by the BBC uh, back in the 1960s, but it was rerunning on PBS
0: mm-hmm.
1: about starring Patrick McGuin about a supposed spy who was abducted when he resigned and taken to this remote resort area where they tried to trick him into revealing why he designed. And it, it had it had a, a, it had had themes based upon individuality and, and not bidding to the will society, society, which was very appealing to me at that age. So, I begged <laughs> to make a game based upon this uh TV show, and they allowed me to do it, and so for like the next six weeks, I just sat there designing and programming, designing and programming, designing and programming uh, and uh and it was, it was it was like I was in a design flow. I just it just all came out sure and uh and uh they they called it the prisoner, even though we never got the license for the show.
0: I was going to ask about that
1: yeah because it was back it was like the wild west back then nobody knew anything about copyright or trademark or anything like that certainly people developing games uh like me didn't know anything about that and and big business didn't take any notice of us because we were a small hobbyist market uh but the game turned out to be a real big hit uh within within the the hobbyist game industry and uh it was was probably the first, first it was the first hit of my career okay um anyways Edgeware lasted for five years and, and uh, developed a, a number of different games and educational software with them. And then uh, and then we were bought out by a uh, big company back east, Peachtree Software, which made accounting software. And they wanted to, to break into the home market. So they bought our company, but mostly because of its educational software. Mm-hmm. And within a year had driven us out of business. Because oh, they didn't wow. understand the home market. Uh, so I and a group of... of my fellow employees got together and we started up our own company making 3d simulations. Uh, and, uh, we became uh, electronic arts very first affiliated label publisher.
0: Oh, wow. And, really?
1: Uh, yeah. They're very first. And we made a game called wilderness, wilderness, of survival adventure with a couple of NASA JPL scientists. So it was very okay. scientifically accurate and immersive. And I think it was the first relatively uh, real time First-person perspective 3D game, uh, adventure okay. game, uh, and and we made a lunar landing simulator. But unfortunately, us being the first, Electronic Arts made all their mistakes on us. Sure. Uh, so uh, so we uh, they, they they overbought our inventory and asked us to buy inventory back, and it was we we got into a deep financial mess. And if okay. you're an indie developer and you're making box products. Among the expenses you have to worry about, in addition to development, in addition to marketing, is inventory. Actually, right. making physical copies and sinking money into that. And if you don't sell any, if you don't sell as many as you make, that's all lost money. And so we got into that problem. And we eventually went out of business. So then, from there, I just kind of went from company to company. I joined Walt Disney Company, its very first video game producer, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and made, uh, among other things, DuckTales for the NES and the PC. I joined uh, Cyber Dreams as its head producer there and worked with Harlan Ellison on making, adapting his short story, I Have No Math and I'm a Scream, into a video game. Worked with H.R. Giger on adapting his artwork into a game called Darkseed. Uh, From there went on to uh, uh, to, uh, New World Computing, which is a studio owned by the 3DO company. And was in charge of the Heroes of Might Magic franchise, uh, okay. which is very popular turn-based fantasy uh, combat uh, strategy game franchise. Uh, and uh, headed that up for four years before joining Activision, where I worked on uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines and uh, and uh, Tony Hawk American Wasteland. And then after that, I kind of decided to downsize a little bit, and I joined an ex. Uh, employee that who had worked in the mailroom at cyber dream several several years back we started okay. up his own mobile game company so i joined with him uh, making actually the very uh some of the very early mobile games including the first one ever advertised on television because uh we were we were developing games with nbc sports based on the olympics and uh they advertised one of our games Bodie miller's alpine racing on uh, on the television and uh Guess how many it's with the audience of millions. Guess how many it sold. <laughs> yeah, it got downloaded from that from from an advertising. How many? Whatever you guess, it'll be too high. I think it was like <laughs> it was like one hundred copies. Reason oh, wow. why is because back then in, there was there was no app store, there was no Google Play store, there was there was only, you had to text a number a, a number on on on, on uh, instant messaging to download it. And they just flashed it real quickly. You know, Body Miller's out Alpine Racing, come play it, text eight seven four five three, to three, six, seven, seven, eight, nine, and that was it. And unless you caught it at that very quick instant, you wouldn't be able to download the game. Right. <laughs> so so no, it was, uh, it was it was really tough back then. And anyway, since then I, I joined uh, Spin Master Toy Company, uh, making games based upon their toys, uh, and uh, a few other few other uh, indie developers. Uh, that mostly made uh, games on uh, on contract to other people. Okay. And now I'm teaching, spreading my knowledge and experience at Los Angeles Film School, where I'm in charge of the game production program there.
0: There's so many things that I need to ask you now. So fair warning, we're gonna we're gonna dig in deep on this story. So, um, I guess I, I want to rewind back to the beginning. Uh, sure. Working at Eduware, right? Yeah. Um, you are designing all these games um
1: no back back in those days i worked on both in both basic which was uh, easy it. to use language that came with the computers and assembly language okay I, so i i wrote uh, actually all all the uh the tools used by our company including a text parser and a 2d engine and some other things in assembly language and then the the main game code in basic
0: so did you just teach yourself all of that then when well, you took I, this job?
1: I was. I, I did have my degree in computer science, so I, I did know a lot of programming. Okay. But I learned more in my first year of real work than I did in my entire four years of school. Uh, so, it was a, in effect, always, whenever I've done programming, in fact, just about any aspect of my career, I'm constantly studying. I'm, I'm still studying to this day, uh, learning new things, new, new, new tools, new, new processes, uh, new ways of doing things constant constant learning though so, so
0: no school never ended uh, what tell me this what exactly is it that you teach now
1: well i'm teaching several courses uh right now i'm teaching a course in game mechanics okay and i'm teaching another course in marketing and monetization oh I also, wow I also it uh teach our uh some of our game production courses where where students spend several months working on a single project and so i i mentor them as they're developing the, uh, their own games after having gone through all the courses where they learn all the basics of design and programming, art and audio.
0: So you don't just teach design then. it is all aspects of I guess being a part of this industry, right?
1: Well, we have a number of teachers who are specialists. we have we have one teacher who specializes in programming, another in level design, another in audio, and another in art. Uh, I mainly focus on design and overall uh, project management myself. Okay. But I, I do help them out with others. There's only so much programming I can help them with that their questions get too, too deep. I, I send them over to our programming instructor.
0: <laughs> so let me ask you this then. Uh, as a teacher now teaching um, inside of the video game industry, what is, what is education like now compared to what you learned in computer science you know, back in the 70s? What, was, what's, what is that like to be on both sides of that?
1: Well, of course, back then, the whole idea of people having a career making video games was, was completely unknown. Right. I, I didn't even know there was such a thing. The only video game I had played was, uh, uh, system was, was Magnavox Odyssey. And that seemed more like electronics than, uh, than programming to me. Sure. Uh, so so it was a completely different experience. Nowadays, what we do is we, act, we focus so much on so many different disciplines. It's not just the programming. It's art in understanding art principles, it's understanding the, the, how music creates moods. It's understanding game design, which is about creating a user experience for players uh, using a lot of psychological principles uh, and, and rigorous testing of everything. And then it's just not doing projects as homework assignments. It's actually working on a single game for several months as part of a team. The teamwork aspect is very important. Something we strongly uh, emphasize. Sure. Because you can't you can't work in in game uh, game development without having team skills, both communication skills and working with others and figuring out how to take a very complex project, break it down into its components, uh, doing some estimates on how long it will take to do each aspect of of the game, and, and figuring out who's going to do it and, and what is the correct order to do things in so mm-hmm. we didn't learn anything like that back when I was in college. So it's, it's, it's a, a, a wider set of skills okay. that we give to our students than, than I was done college and I had to learn on my own.
0: So then you move on from EduWare, you move uh, on to, I guess you at that point started your own company, is that right? Yes,
1: yes, with uh, three other people.
0: Right. What was that company called?
1: It was called Electric Transit. Because we wanted, we wanted to create immersive, virtual experiences of exploration. So the electric part refers to the virtual computer and transit to, to exploration.
0: So how did you get connected to electronic arts then at that point?
1: Uh, I think uh, we, it was just through a trade show. Uh, oh, we, okay. we attended a trade show, and the, uh, the guy who was, uh, who was our, uh, essentially our business development guy um, met people electronic arts and rearranged meetings showed off our product and it struck their deal
0: what was the energy like at that point did you think that you know this was going to work out really well i mean were you all doing a bit of a uh, young uh starving artist type of approach what was that it, like
1: it was exciting because we were on our own but we were underfunded and when you're there were only actually two of us in the office at any one time, uh, the rest of us had full time jobs elsewhere, which oh. is a really bad way to run a company. Uh, <laughs> so our attention was diverted. It felt very lonely a lot of times. And as as a result, uh, some of our energy was a little bit low. Uh, so we, we did we did produce some some product I'm proud of. But it wasn't an ideal circumstance. I, I much prefer. Having the money, having the people there, people not being distracted by other things going on. Yeah, it's it's always better when you're funded. So, so uh, <laughs> it's, there was a lot I liked about the experience. There was a lot that was not ideal.
0: Sure. Fair enough. So what was the timeline like between when you I guess, started your company, uh, Electric Transit, and then it ended up? kind of crumbling apart because of uh, inventory issues and, and funding issues.
1: Yeah, that was two years altogether. We survived for two
0: years. Okay.
1: Essentially I was working without a salary during that time. It was a startup. Right. And uh, so I never got any financial rewards as, as re, or compensation as a result.
0: So then at that point, are you, are you looking for money? Is that pretty high on your priority list following the well, demise I was, I was, of electric uh, transit?
1: I was looking for a job. Sure. And uh, fortunately, it was a friend of mine, uh, so a programmer worked for me at Edgeware that told me about this job opening you read at Disney for a software development specialist is what they called it. Okay. And uh, I, I went and I applied for the job, and uh, they asked me if I could name the seven dwarves. Literally, <laughs> that was one really? of the interview questions, yes. And I could, because <laughs> I, was, I was a big Disney fan, and uh, I got the job. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was great. And then they sent me to the very first game developers conference. You know, the game developers conference is going on this week. And it is. I, right? Sorry, I, I attended. No, it wasn't the very first. It was the second one. The very first one was held in Chris Crawford's uh, uh, living room. The second <laughs> one was held at a hotel. I think in San Jose. Could be wrong about the location, but I, I attended the second one, and it was there that I learned that what I do is called a producer is that electronic like okay. arts had invented that term for someone who who uh, works at a publisher and kind of shepherds projects along. And so I was a game producer, which since I originally wanted to be a filmmaker that I, I like that title. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, so uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. And, and it, was, it was fun working at a company that could actually pay a weekly salary. <laughs> that, that was really nice about the corporate yeah, environment. Sure.
0: So, uh you're having fun, you're getting paid and you're a producer. What is uh what is it like being a producer at that time? What does the workload look like?
1: Um the workload load was really heavy uh sure. back then cuz we 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 had a lot of projects we were assigned. I think I was at one time developing uh 16 different SKUs. SKU meaning stock keeping unit. So I was working right. on wow. four titles each on four different platforms at one time and I remember our uh, our, our first game that we actually self published a lot lot of a lot of the games we did at first were actually licensed games where we license uh, Disney characters and movies properties to other companies to develop game force and and our job was to both give them the materials they needed the the uh, the character model sheets and the scripts and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but then we we decided we would make more money publishing our own games. So the very first game we published was Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
0: Excellent. Okay.
1: And we worked with a developer that was located n- nearby in Glendale. And uh we it was a very tight schedule cuz uh we were we we're trying to get it done in time for Christmas and I think mm-hmm. we had started like oh or five months ahead of time uh so we're, we're and we spend all of our time over at the developer's place and it was not unusual to spend up till midnight there every every day and then uh then back to uh, our uh, the office job at 8 a.m the next morning and uh, wow and so yeah everyone's working very very long hours uh <laughs> trying to get everything done it was it was exhausting work it was fun but but exhausting
0: so then you end up, uh, I guess, moving over to Cyber Dreams. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's actually how I'm familiar with your work. Um, I have no mouth and I must scream. Um, came to mobile last year, if anyone wants to go check it out. Um, and that was actually the first time I discovered your work and, and um, this quite famous cult game. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like working uh, with Cyber Dreams and, and working on that project?
1: Well, let's see. Cyber Dreams was was a very small publisher, a boutique publisher, specializing in games developed in collaboration with famous names from science fiction and fantasy and horror. And one of the games they had in development was was with Harlan Ellison adapting his, his short story, his, his famous short story. Mm-hmm. And that work had, on that had actually begun before I joined the company. In fact, I, I first found out about it when I attended a game developers conference. And they had a talk there with Harlan Nelson and, uh, and David uh, Sears, who was the designer they brought on to the project. Okay. And I attended a meeting where they were talking about it, and I thought, this is my favorite short story of all time. And it sounds very similar to, to my game, The Prisoner. I should be making this game. <laughs> well, as it turned out, uh, Cyber Dreams hired me ab- to brought me aboard to, to produce the game after david sears had left the project the original designer okay and it was uh, it was it was sears very first game design uh and the game design document he he left was unfinished uh there were a lot of details that needed to be spec'd out so uh so i, I took over completing the design on it and i went to meet harlan who was, who was my big idol and so i remember the very first meeting at his house uh Went over to his house, and you walk up to his house, and the first thing you know, it's a middle-class house up in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. Okay. But all along the roof are stone gargoyles. And protecting the gargoyles was barbed wire, because I later found out that that a lot of the neighborhood kids would try to steal the gargoyles from the roof. Oh, wow. Gargoyles and barbed wire on his roof. (laughs) And I went in to meet Harlan. Now, I... I was a big fan of Harlan, but I read all the stories about him how difficult he was to work with and how cantankerous he was and uh, and difficult. So, but, uh, and he proved to be that way at our first meeting. I, I went in and I introduced myself, and he said, uh, Oh, great, an- another cyber member of the Cyber Dreams Brain Trust. And then, uh, then <laughs> I said, I brought my computer, I want to show you the work we've done so far. And he goes, all right, go in the, the kitchen and plug it in. And I go into the kitchen and I look around and I don't don't find a plug anywhere. And he starts hurling insults at me. Um, so, but then I, I look and I discovered that the plug was not on the wall, but on the uh, the outlet was 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 actually on the on the heading of a. Of a diner-style booth he had installed in his kitchen, and underneath a plant. And when I picked up the plant pot, I discovered the outlet. So that's when I plugged in the computer. Uh, and then, oh wow! I got him to, to sit down next to me, and I started showing him the work we had done so far. Um, and uh, and uh, he started to get impressed. And then I told him about my work on the prisoner, and how uh, I was a big believer in doing games that weren't just all about, you know, uh, about uh, testing people's reflexes, I wanted to create intellectual stimulating games. And he was very impressed with that, and I started winning him over. So okay. we, we started working, working quite well together, and, and as it turned out, there, there was a lot of dialogue for the game that needed to be written. Uh, in fact, I'd say only, when, when I took on the project, I think only about 25% of the game's dialogue had actually been written. So I took over writing a lot of it because Harlan wasn't available. It was only available for short periods. And I remember one time uh, I went over to his house and I started showing him the dialogue I had written for Mm -hmm. one scene. And he looked at it and he goes, this is shit. And I said, and he goes, who wrote this? And I said, I wrote it. And then he started to get all embarrassed and flustered. And I said, "No, no, that's okay. It it is shit compared to what you write. So go fix it." He goes, "What?" I said, "No, you rewrite it. Make it, make it good." And so he went. He went off to his office while I just sat there in the living room. And he came out twenty minutes later with much better writing. And so that's what we used in the game. So th- that's how we'd work together. We would uh, I I'd do a lot of the work, and then he'd go back and and fix it up. And uh, it was. It was great work with him. I, 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 uh, I enjoyed his, uh, his personality and uh, never took offense at how he acted because often when he got to be insulting he, he kind of caught himself and kind of got embarrassed over it. Uh, but uh, so I, I think Deep Gandhi has a good heart. So it was, it was a great experience working with him and uh, a and, uh, great experience turning out the game because it won all sorts of awards. Uh, I think mostly attributable to, uh, to Highland's own genius. And, uh, no, that was, it was a great project
0: to work on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, it did come out on iOS and Android last year. So if anyone's interested, they can go and, uh, download it, check it out and see some of your, uh, old work. I believe the original one came out in 1995 to get some context. Is that right? That That's right? right. That's right. Okay. So then you, you do some other work with Cyberdreams. Um, you work with some impressive people, right? Um, And then you end up going to a larger company and working on Heroes of Might and Magic. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Tell me a little bit about uh, that project.
1: All right. Well, unfortunately, Cyber Dreams, although our games were well received, uh, the owner of the company, he actually owned several companies and and decided to focus on those. They were more profitable for him. So he, he shut us down. And it was a programmer who had worked at CyberDreams earlier, um, had gone over to work at New World Computing, and he, con- he contacted me to let me know that they had an opening for a job producer. Okay. By the way, I will say, 80% of the jobs I've gotten in the game industry have been through either people telling me about the opportunity or referring me for the property. So I'm like going to give you an early tip for all of your <laughs> listeners And that is the importance of networking uh, and the importance of other people thinking that you are a good person to work with because almost the vast majority of jobs are gotten through referrals. They're not, not by answering one ads In fact, a lot of opportunities are not advertised. Sure. Uh, So it's real important to network, you know, attend those conferences, attend meetings, uh, get to know people, be active on, on social networking. Uh, right, so, we just said uh,
0: a Game Developers Conference is going on right now This yes, as we
1: speak. Yes, and if I had been done better at arranging my teaching schedule so I could go, I would be there at, be there at this moment, although I'm having a lovely time talking with you. Uh, <laughs> th- n- next year, I'll have to arrange my schedule a little bit better.
0: You know anyway. what, I'm dying to go as well, so hopefully I'll see you there next year.
1: Sure. I uh, went and interviewed there, and uh, they asked me, what I would do to that they were, they we're looking for a producer for the next version of the game. They had just done Heroes of Mind Magic 2, and it was a big, it was a big hit. It was like named by several magazines the best turn-based strategy game of all time. Mm-hmm. And it was exciting with the idea of working on a sequel, uh, uh, yet another sequel to it. But I thought there's nowhere to go but down. So I went and played the game. And I thought, you know, it's a great game. I can improve on the gameplay. But to me, the graphics looked five years behind the time. Oh. So that's what I decided I'd focus on. And, um, and so uh, I got the idea. Uh, someone else introduced me to uh, Warhammer. And I liked the look of those characters. They were very different from the sort of children's fantasy look of, of, the, pre- of the characters in Heroes of Might Magic. So mm-hmm. I got the idea of extreme fantasy. That's what I wanted the sequel to look like. <laughs> anyway, so I went back and I I I told the uh, I told the uh, the owners uh, the managers that that's what I want I want to focus a lot on the artwork. And they said, well, that's a good idea because we've been unhappy with our art director, and our art director has been with us a long time, but we we don't have the we don't want to get rid of, get rid of her. Instead, we want you to, to find a new art director within the company to art direct this project. Okay. So,
0: okay. So, yeah. I, so
1: I agreed to do that. And, uh, and they brought me on in the same day they hired a game designer, Greg Fulton to work on this project. I had never met him before. So there was the, there were, there were the two of us and there was a programmer they gave us to be our lead programmer. And uh, eventually, found out that it was actually more of a junior programmer. So I needed I needed some some new programming help. So I actually brought in a couple of the programmers that had worked on Abdomouth and a Screen to do the programming on this. Another example of using one's network to fill positions. There you go. So so I brought them in, and then uh, I went and through uh, went to meet each of the individual artists in the art department. We had our art department of around 30 people. And so I, I went just on the pretense of getting to know them and asked them how did they like their job and everyone said, oh, it's great. The work we're doing is wonderful. We we have a good time here. They don't make us work too hard. And then finally, I went to uh, meet an artist uh, by the name of Phelan, Phelan Sykes, uh, who uh, I sat down with her and said, what what do you think of your work here? She goes, we suck. Everything we do, we could be doing so much better. Uh, People are lazy. They should be working harder. Uh, We should be doing better quality artwork. And I thought, I found my art director. (laughs) (laughs) And as it turned out, she was also the best artist in the company. So I had my core team. I had my designer, my art director, my my lead programmer. And uh, we just started working on the game. Uh, and I, kind of, I communicated my vision of extreme fantasy, and uh, Greg, uh, the, the, uh, the game designer, really got it. And Phelan, the, uh, the lead artist, also got what I wanted. In fact, Greg helped me dig up a lot of reference artwork. And uh, we started just making the game, adding more and more people to the uh, team as it got further along. So eventually adding more artists. And then more programmers and level designers and such, and eventually we were a team that like, oh, I'd say 20, 30 people or so, yeah, um, all together. And uh, we made the game in about 14 months. 14 months, I think it was. Uh, from starting on it to complete it, we we, we, uh, we, u- we used uh, all, new, all new code for it, and uh, completely new design, completely re- revamped the game design. And much to our surprise, it turned out to be an even bigger hit than Heroes of Might and Magic 2. So I count that as one of my more successful projects.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's extremely impressive, the way you put together that team. So what would you say your biggest takeaway was from that experience, if you had to choose something?
1: Um, It really is the importance of teamwork and getting everyone to follow a, a clear vision, uh, and, and really appreciating people and, and giving them the freedom to, uh, to do, do their
0: best. So then you go from New World and you go to Activision, which is which is pretty big at that point. Yeah. Um, and you said, I mean, you worked on a number of games for them, right?
1: Kind of three. Because uh, they originally hired me to do a Star Trek game. Finally, I had my opportunity to do a real Star Trek game.
0: That was your and, dream, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was my dream, and uh, it helped that I was a real Star Trek nerd, and uh, so we uh, we uh, they brought me in to, uh, and we found a uh, developer in Hungary to work on the game uh, out of Budapest that had a really good game engine and uh, a three D three D three D engine, and uh, so we, we started working on this game, and I'd, I'd make trips over to to Budapest. To work with them and come back and worked with Paramount on, on 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 showing what our ideas was and we got the project up to a playable demo stage okay. uh, of of the space combat we wanted to do and the VP that was over me said it was the uh, it was the best demo he had seen in his entire ten years at Activision so all right this is turning out well and then. <laughs> Star Trek, uh, Enterprise came out and bombed in the ratings, and Star Trek: Nemesis oh, no. came out in the theaters and bombed in the box office. And mm-hmm. Activision said said to Paramount, "You are no longer supporting the the Star Trek franchise with quality product, and therefore we are canceling our pro- our our contracts with you." And they canceled every Star Trek project in development including mine. Wow. And that was it. That was it. So so I never got a chance to complete my Star Trek game. What they did instead was move me over to another project they had in development. Another another licensed property, but not not based on TV shows or or movies. It was based on a paper role playing game, Vampire the Masquerade. And it was being developed by Troika Games, which was a small well, not a small, mid-sized developer, okay. uh, composed of the same people that worked on the original Fallout. Uh, oh, wow, play okay. Game. Yeah. And uh, the project had been kind of spinning its wheels for a year and a half uh, because they didn't have an Activision producer assigned to it. They had an assistant producer, but not, not, a, not, not a full producer. And they needed someone to get the project on track and get it to completion. And so that gave me that opportunity which was great because I, I, I love paper role playing games and I loved horror. Sure. And, uh, and it was being built uh, based upon uh, the, uh, the, the, the source engine that Valve was developing for Half-Life 2. And that was the biggest problem, developing a game for a game engine that was still in development itself. Because oh. every time they made a change to the game engine, the game engine had not been released yet. Every time they made a change to the game engine, a whole bunch of assets and, and code that had been created for it uh, became useless and sure, had to be started right. over again. So that was a big challenge, and it was bad. Uh, bad uh, it was bad for the developers, bad for motivation for them. And so uh, it, was, uh, it was. It was involved a lot of meetings with uh, with Valve trying to, to get get more communication between the engine developers and uh, the, our, our development team. Uh, although, you know, it, their stuff had, had higher priority than, than our stuff. And, uh, and kind of getting the, the game play on track. Um, Troika had a reputation for making a lot of changes to the game, to their games mm-hmm. at the last moment. And as a result, it would introduce a lot of bugs in their games. So one of my, my uh, mandates was to make sure that they would finish stuff and not introduce changes at the end. So okay. I would go sure. to I, I wound up being an embedded producer at on their uh, uh, on their at their studio, and uh, it was a long drive. It was a sixty mile drive for me. Uh, wow! Each way. So yeah. uh, so uh, it would have been very long days for me, and I brought two. Uh, uh, two testers with me from from Activision's Quality Assurance Department. Mm -hmm. And we would sit down, and each time they went on to work on a new section of the game, we sat down with with them, had them spec out exactly everything involved in developing it, what their goals were with it. And then when they developed it, we would sit down, test it right then and there, uh, got it working, and then stop them from working on it anymore and move on to the next thing. Um, so it was a it was very much a a almost an assembly line kind of process that wasn't as much fun as as some other games I worked on. In fact, it couldn't have been very happy for them to uh to have had a babysitter like that with them
0: <laughs> so you I mean you're pretty much working like a madman all the time you I mean, you're driving all the time, you're working on this. I mean, it seems like you're just putting your entire life into this.
1: oh, yeah. Oh yeah, it, you know, until the until, uh, past couple of years, working in the game industry, especially if you're working on AAA games, it was very rough. Yeah, Crunch time was the bane of video game development, and working long hours was expected. In fact, I had a boss at Activision who told me that if you're a game developer and you're not working 60 hours a week, even when, when you're not on a deadline, you're not a real game developer. So wow. the expectation was to be cramming in all these hours. Sure. And yeah, it it I've seen firsthand what it does to people. It gets them tired. They make mistakes. It's not a good place to be. Fortunately, I think the industry has realized that that's been a problem and has worked a lot harder on uh, on not putting unrealistic demands on developers. It still happens, but not as not as much as before.
0: Right. So did you? feel like you were suffering from any sort of you know burnout or overwork at that point
1: oh yeah at that time oh yes I was I was I was exhausted I, we, were, we were working on a game of vampires but I turned into a zombie I was just I was dead <laughs> tired all the time and my family life suffered uh, everything's my health suffered it was it was by the time we released the game I'm, I'm surprised I, I was still uh, still able to uh to walk on two feet it was it was it was a very tough experience developing that game.
0: I was going to ask. I mean, you, you'd you pretty much been working and growing your career nonstop since what, the late 70s. Did you have time for a personal life? Did you build a family? How did that come together?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I got married, actually, uh, my last year at Disney uh, to my wonderful wife, Charlotte, and we have two kids. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a conflict, and you got to figure out a way to work it out. My, my youngest son, we had, uh, we had discovered when he was three months old that he had a, uh, a bleeding tumor, it was, uh, a form of cancer called neuroblastoma. And right. that became a, uh, a year-long, year-and-a-half odyssey of surgeries and chemotherapy uh, and all that. And he'd spend half his time in the hospital. And so my wife took a year off. She's a teacher. She took a year off uh, from work. They, they, they gave her a leave of absence and held her job for her. But she'd stay at the hospital during the day, and after work I'd come there at night. And I remember I was working on "I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream" that time, and I just channeled all of that angst into my work. And in fact, uh, in, in writing a lot of the dialogue for the game, which is, it was a very dark, dark game, uh, I, I just channeled that into writing uh, writing a lot of the dialogue. And so I just took the difficulties and put it into my work and figured out how to work my work around my family life.
0: I was going to ask, um, for the people out there who are working too much or who want to do this, do you have advice for them on how to balance those things, how to still be a human being and still be able to work in this industry?
1: It, I will say it it is important to find a way to balance it. You can't put all of your time into your work. Uh, you're not going to be, you're not going to be working at, at peak productivity if you're exhausted and if you're a game developer, you have to draw on a lot of different experiences, life experiences if you want to create an innovative product. So it's important to, to have those experiences. So take time out to travel, to, uh, to go camping, to read books, to go to museums and see art. Uh, having, having a well-rounded life will make you a much better developer. And do whatever you can to resist the, uh, the urge and, and the mandate. work incredibly long hours it's not worth it it's put more effort into planning up front so you don't have to work those hours
0: so then looking at your career you step away from activision your your contract ends with them correct yes and you step into the mobile scene yeah that's pretty that's pretty fascinating what did you what was that experience like it was a completely new marketplace
1: yeah it was uh, i had gone from working on games with multi-million dollar budgets to uh very small games, in a lot of ways, was like going back to the old days of, of, of very small projects with very small teams with very quick turnaround schedules. The big difference was that all the different platforms we had to support. Right. Uh, it wasn't, back in those days, it wasn't just Android and Apple. If you, there wasn't a lot of compatibility between these games, well, there was actually, when you made a game, you had to do it in like five or six different builds to okay. uh, to accommodate different, mainly different screen resolutions. And then you had to get it ported to a hundred or more different handsets. And to do that, you needed help. And you needed help from the Chinese. So what, uh, <laughs> what we did, we made builds of the game, and then we had our relationship with... Uh, with uh, with companies in China that would actually take those games and port them to all the different handsets. Okay. And that was that was a big part of my job was handling that process of uh, getting them the builds and then working with uh, our Chinese uh, Chinese partners to uh, to uh, develop all, all all the different handset versions and get them back to us. in time. So uh, it was a. Uh, in fact, it was, it was a lot of working with with overseas companies. We uh, one of the games that we developed was a was a, uh, a cross-platform game, a trading card game called Freaky Creatures, in which you could play your game either on your mobile phone or on PC. And I worked with a company in Germany on developing the lobby system for that game. Okay. So it wouldn't be unusual that uh, I... I w- First thing in the morning from home, I'd have calls with the uh, company in Germany. Then I'd drive into work, do my normal work day then come home and then uh, around 11 o'clock at night have a have a call with China oh wow so, but, but it wasn't I mean it wasn't exhausting it was a you know, brief phone call in the morning and then a, a eight hour day and then a brief call at night right it just spread out through uh, throughout the entire day
0: so, that's such a fascinating problem to have to work around you know yeah
1: yeah and you have to deal with everyone's different time schedules and making sure everyone was on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh and I I learned a little bit about working on virtual teams as a result of that where you have different people spread out in different locations rather than everyone co-located uh with each other. Uh it, it involves just double checking a lot and making sure things are communicated clearly and and just keeping up with everything.
0: Right? So, what did you take away from your time working in mobile? I mean, that's uh, you you worked with um with this company, abandoned Mobile, right? Right. For uh, how many years?
1: I think it was three years. Okay. Three years? I I think, uh, well, the big thing I, I took away from the entire experience was, was uh, well, mostly it just has to do with the fact that you're, uh, the shift in technology from from playing games on your home computer in your, your family room or your bedroom, and then being able to play games on the go, mm-hmm. uh, which involves... Both, uh, it's very different from the, from, the, from the big massive games I used to work on. It involves creating a much shorter game loop. The, the actions you perform over and over in a game. So you can have, have a satisfying experience within a, just a couple minutes. You know, you can, you're at the bus stop. You're waiting. You pull out your phone and play for a minute or two. And then, and then reach a sense of closure. Uh, and then pick it up again later. Uh, right. Very different from the types of games I did before. And it required a, a whole new level of design thinking uh so i'd say that was the biggest takeaway from the experience
0: well david you worked on mobile for a while now you're teaching um what does it feel like to be you know imparting all of this knowledge to a new generation of people after such a you know long career in this industry
1: you know i'm having the time of my life uh, as, as as great as my career has been i, I think this is my my most fun job of all it's it's working with so many energetic, bright students and uh, and and uh, teaching them. Actually, what I didn't realize I knew, you know, I always had had problems in job interviews where, where they would ask me, how would you start a project or how would you do this or how would you do that? And I yeah. couldn't never answer the question because it was always more intuitive. I'd just go and do it. I never thought about how I went about doing it. But to teach, I actually had to sit down and think about how games are developed, and what makes for a, for a good game. And that also required me to do a lot of research uh, that I never really bothered to do before into to other people's approaches to games. And that helped me become a better designer. Uh, so I'm, I feel like I, because I'm teaching, I know more about games than I ever did before, more about game development. And it, it's just great working with, with all these students and, and watching them create their own games.
0: So let me ask you this then, because I think they tie in pretty directly, Uh, and this kind of gets us into talking a little bit about the indie video game scene as a whole. What do you think about the way the industry is structured right now with downloadable games and just the accessibility of it all, and and how does that tie into what you teach?
1: Well, in general, I I just love the fact that that the game industry seems to have done a, done a, a 360, and that... There, there's. It's a lot easier to enter in the industry than it was when it was when everything was controlled by the AAA uh, publishers. Right, and that allows people to take a lot more risks. Uh, I mean, we I I could never get another prisoner, or or some of the other games I made early on uh, uh, greenlit by a, a big publisher, and these days you know you can make whatever game you want. The problem actually actually is that it's so easy to get in that there's tremendous competition right and it's really tough i mean it's like i think i read the other day that uh uh, some like 400 new games appear on the app store sure uh, every day not uh not necessarily but at least apps 400 every day so how Mm -hmm. on earth do you get noticed uh and it's you know, you do have to make a good game, but it's more than that. It's it's about marketing yourself uh, and and building an audience and a following for for your game uh, well ahead of time. And it's figuring out a, a a a plan and a business model to sustain yourself. Because if you're an indie developer just starting out, guarantee you, your first game is going to suck, and your second game is <laughs> going to suck, and mm-hmm. your third, and you may not have a decent game for you know, until you do a half a dozen. And even then, there's still guarantee that it's gonna make money. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle, being an indie game developer. A lot of people are attracted to the romance of it, and uh, yeah, I, you know, the idea of being kind of this, this, uh, this lone wolf out there and uh, not, not, not working for the man and, and doing your own thing and being creative, that all, that all sounds great. But there's a price to it, and that price is is that it's it's tough to make a living, and it's it's tough to be successful. It's like starting up any new company. Eighty percent of all companies fail within the first two years, and it's no different from being an indie game developer. You're being your own small business person, so you have to take the approach that you are building a business, and you have to learn to deal with the risks. And you have to to. It's more about than just making a game. It's it's turning that game development into a self-sustaining business. So you got to wear two hats, the, the artist hat and the businessman hat. Okay.
0: And it seems like, you know, based on what you said about the classes you're teaching, you really try to, uh, approach both sides of that in education.
1: Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, my, in fact, my, my very first lecture, my very first class, I try to scare the hell out of with the realities <laughs> of game development, how you're not going to be a billionaire. And, uh, you know, a lot of game companies, you are working long hours, and you frequently get laid off, and most games are not successful. You do it because you're passionate about it, not because it's... If, if you were rational, you would never do it. Uh, the risks are too high. You just do it because you can't do anything else. You can't think of doing anything else, which is, which is how I got into it. Um, right. And, and and then once you're into it, once you're in our program... And now I'm teaching uh, in our upper division uh, marketing monetization class. And we talk about techniques, about marketing, both both, both, uh, using advertising and publicity, as well as social media to promote yourself. Uh, And you constantly have to be promoting yourself, both as Mm -hmm. a company and as an individual, uh, if you want to get noticed.
0: And what is, I mean, if you have to boil it down to something, what do you think the key is to differentiating yourself in this you know industry where everything is just constantly overloaded the app store has 400 new apps coming out and all you have are your social media tools and your you know marketing tools what's the key to standing out
1: it's two things you have to build a good product you have to satisfy a need for your customer Mm -hmm. and and that's true with any app you you really need to provide value for your customer so if your customer is a gamer and you're developing an entertainment product, you have to be providing a good value in terms of entertainment. You, and in a way that no one else is. So you have, there's, there's got to be something innovative about your product as well as it being a well-made product. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you you just got to find ways to get noticed. And there, that's where you apply your creativity to your marketing. Can you do some guerrilla viral marketing campaign? Can you put together a, a good... Uh, a good um, story for your advertising campaign. Um, who are your target customers? What do they want? Uh, what's good ways to grab their attention and tell them that you're going to be giving them what they want? Maybe something they didn't realize they wanted before. Uh, so it, it, it's just applying your, your creativity and your skills to both both your product and your marketing.
0: David, what do you think the future of well, the video game industry as a whole, but especially indie video games, uh, what do you think the future is like for that area of of this industry? I mean, do you think we're going to reach a critical point where it's all going to come tumbling down? Or do you think that we're going to find well, a way to make this all work?
1: Well, they've been talking about the indie indiepocalypse for, for, for a year or so now. <laughs> um, and, you, you know, inevitably, whenever there's a ton of people in a marketplace, uh, there's going to be a shakeout. And I'm, I guess there will be a maybe. Maybe the lure of indie development will uh, will uh, will cause a lot of people. Well, will cause uh, that attract a lot of people. The lure will diminish. Maybe a lot of people will drop out. Um, but uh, in terms of what new games are going to be and new ways of delivering those games, well, as as Yoda said, the the the, the future is always in motion and. My magic eight ball doesn't always work, so I, I really can't guess what the future is going to bring. It will be an interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, now that Steam has gotten rid of Greenlight, right? How how Steam Direct is going to work. Um, I, I've been reading that you know guesses about what what the uh, what the initial fee is going to be. Maybe mm-hmm. as high as five thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, in that case, maybe it's going to get. To, to winnow out some of the, the people that really shouldn't be in there, that really don't know what they're doing or really aren't that serious about it and, and maybe flooding the, uh, the market with, uh, with product that, that shouldn't be there. Maybe that will help the, the real serious, dedicated indie developer uh, to stand out. We shall see. We shall see.
0: We shall see. Well, we have been talking to David Mullick, who just has been... Uh, sharing his story, his thoughts, um, and a lot of advice. David, is there anything else that you want to send people home with in terms of advice? We usually ask at the end, but you've shared a lot already.
1: Well, I, I if anything, it is um, think about always keep your player in mind. It's your, what you're doing when you're creating a game, you're creating an experience to your, for your player. So figure out what that experience is and do your best to deliver on it. Playtest your game with with. with members of your target audience. Let me see if it... Listen to your target audience. Um, Remember you're developing, you're you're there to entertain them, not not yourself. And then listen to, when you're marketing your, when you're marketing your game, also listen to your your target audience. Uh, Stay active on social media and and follow your players. Uh, Find out what they're interested in, what they seem to like and dislike, and uh, learn to speak their language so you can, uh, so you can better communicate to them, uh, what your product is and why you should buy it.
0: That's sound advice from David Mullick. This of course has been the Indie Insider podcast. It is the weekly podcast where I get to talk to fantastic people like David here, uh, and I get to share it with you. And of course it exists because it is presented by Blackshell Media, the publishing and marketing firm out there to help connect developers and their fantastic games with gamers. Uh, and, of course, you can find all of them online, blackshellmedia.com. They're also on Twitter, at Blackshell Media. Now, of course, if you love this podcast, if you want to connect with us, shoot me an email, logan at blackshellmedia.com, or connect with me on Twitter, uh, Logan A. Schultz. Uh, that's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. And let me know your thoughts, comments, concerns, questions. Give me all of it. I'm ready for it. And, of course, David, if people have loved what you've had to say, um... If they want to follow you on social media and, and just continue to take in more lessons from uh, your teaching, how do people find you out on those interwebs?
1: You can follow me on Twitter, uh, at David underscore Mullick. Uh, I, I post constantly throughout the day both both uh, uh, information I've written and collected, my own blogs. I, I write a blog every week uh, at DavidMullick.com. And uh, if, if anyone is interested in help with game design, I also do game consulting. And you can find me at electricsheep.biz is my business website.
0: It's fantastic. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's really been great to hear the story and, and just have you share your advice. So thank, thank you so you. much.
1: Thank you. It was great talking with you.
0: Awesome. I'm sure we'll have you back soon. I'd love to pick your brain some more in the future. Be glad to do that. Excellent. This has been Indie Insider. And we will see all of you next week.